Greetings, everyone. I'm Michael Nagler with the Nonviolence Report, which is a segment of Nonviolence Radio. And in today's report, we will be looking a bit at the front lines of nonviolence and also trying to analyze some of the underlying dynamics of conflicts around the world. This will range from local disputes to international tensions, and we will be exploring how nonviolence is not just a solution, but, as we've always said, a transformative force. And I'd like to start today with a quote. Uh, this comes from a book called The Last Phase by Gandhiji's secretary, Pyarilal. And this was something that took place in 1942 when some Congress members came to Gandhi. They, they just couldn't quite go along with what he was proposing. And they said, we have not the courage. We can't get on if we oppose you. That is, they didn't have the courage to oppose him. And astoundingly, Gandhi said, you must develop that courage. It is because of that courage to stand alone that I am supposed to represent India's urge for freedom. I'm sharing this with you because it is a dramatic example of how Gandhi was willing to have every person develop to their best, even if it meant resisting him in certain respects. So let me turn then to the news. Uh, of course, the uh, most agonizing item that we have going on in the world today that we know of is the war on Gaza. And there are some resistant forces. One senior Biden official has resigned, at least. His name was Tariq Habash. He was in the Department of Education, and he said that the Biden administration's support for Israel is, quote, wholly out of line with democratic values. And then in New York, at the United Nations, Craig Mockiver, who was the High Commissioner for Human Rights, back in March of last year, accused the body, which is something I have very strongly felt from the beginning of the Gaza conflict, he accused the body of not being able to do anything in the face of, quote, another textbook case of genocide. And Craig resigned after 40-plus years of human rights work. And incidentally, that was four days before he was scheduled to retire, which probably meant a big financial sacrifice for him. And that is uh, what's required if you want a nonviolent statement to really be heard. I mean, it's, of course, important to state the truth as we see it, but it's much more effective even than that when we make some sacrifice uh, in its name. Now, there's an organization in this country called the Good Shepherd Collective, and a member of it is Cody O'Rourke, and he points out the following. There's a campaign right now called No Ceasefire, No Votes, that people won't reelect President Biden, whom they sometimes refer to discourteously as Genocide Joe, that they won't vote for him without a, unless he calls for a ceasefire. So the campaign is called No Ceasefire, No Votes. O'Rourke points out that this campaign, No Ceasefire, No Votes, is becoming more mainstream in organizing spaces. And here's the important part from my point of view. It should not be understood as a short-term tactic, but rather as a longer-term organizing principle to dismantle the DNC, the Democratic uh, National Committee. 
and he he reports that even the squad, you know, those very liberal young Democrats, mostly women, are quote on the bandwagon of supporting Israel, with the exception, of course, of Rashida Tlaib and a few others. So as for the war itself, one demoralizing but interesting item is that Hamas is now regrouping in northern Gaza to prepare a new offensive. And I'm citing this because I want to join the chorus of voices, Israeli and other, and we will be talking about one of them in a little bit, who have pointed out again and again that violence begets violence and what Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to do is absolutely impossible. I just quote, crush Hamas and, and have it over with. But of course, as we've seen in conflict after conflict after conflict around the world, when you crush a group, other members of it rise in their place, sometimes 10 for each one that you uh, get rid of or kill. So around the world, millions of people are now taking to the streets in protest of the attacks on Gaza. Here in the U.S., thousands of us have been arrested for blocking streets, highways, and bridges, and, as I'm sure some of you have seen, disrupting congressional hearings, sitting down and singing in congressional buildings, and chaining themselves to the fence at the White House. This is an example of extremely disruptive tactics, and there are times when such tactics are called for, and when you're in an extreme and dehumanizing conflict, like the conflict in Gaza, that would be certainly one of those times if there ever was one. Now, in the meantime, uh, back on the first part of the curve of escalation, there are scores of government employees who are publishing statements calling into question the silence of their governments on this genocide of Gaza, which now has been, as you know, officially declared a genocide by the International Court of Justice. So uh, the second of this month, February, 800 government employees, and a few more actually, from, uh, from the U.S., from 12 nations, and the U EU organization, they published a letter protesting Israeli policies and stating that the leaders of their countries could be complicit in war crimes in Gaza. That is a very real danger for them. Let me read a bit of a quote from their letter. Our government's current policies weaken their moral standing and undermine their ability to stand up for freedom, justice, and human rights globally. There is a plausible risk that our government's policies are contributing to grave violations of international humanitarian law, war crimes, and even ethnic cleansing or genocide. So of these 820-plus officials, 80 of them are from U.S. agencies, others being from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and so forth. Meanwhile, back in November, more than 500 employees from 40 U.S. government agencies sent a letter to President Biden criticizing his policies on the continuous attack. 
In that letter, incidentally, they did not reveal their names due to the probability of retaliation by the agencies. So, you know, that's, it's kind of difficult to say, but the fact is that does weaken a statement of this kind. I'm not saying that they should have done it, but if you wanted it to have maximum effect, what you would say is, here's my name, here's where I stand, you do what you feel you need to, and take the punishment, you know, whatever it is, lose your job, whatever. So again, I'm not saying they should have done it, I'm not arguing that it is necessary to do it, but to follow out the logic of nonviolence, that is what would have made a statement like that, a letter like that, have much more impact. In the meantime, look at USAID. A thousand player employees have released an open letter with the same concern, and dozens of State Department officials have sent at least three what they call internal dissent cables to the Secretary of State, Antony J. Blinken. So it is, uh, it's really a crisis that's developing. There is enormous pressure on the one side uh, and enormous pressure on the other, the one side being a deeply entrenched conservatism, which for reasons that we go into sometimes are uncritically and universally in support of Israel. And I just want to say that this, quote, support of Israel, unquote, is highly ambiguous. As any parent knows, if you want to support your offspring, you often have to resist what they're trying to do. If to resist it nonviolently without disrespect is an important dimension of nonviolence. One image that I've seen used about this, say you're at a party, a friend of yours gets very drunk, uh, it's his car that you're going to go home in. Uh, you take the keys away from him. He gets very angry. Yet in the morning when he sobers up, he's going to really appreciate what you've done. Now, there's been a very interesting development, as you know, with the International Court of Justice. And it's, again, pretty critical because if that condemnation of theirs, where they said this is one stage short of outright calling it a genocide, if they are ignored, it will weaken the court. So that is what is at stake here, and it'll be really interesting to watch how this unfolds in the following weeks. So in other news, I think we're mostly aware that there has been a very dispiriting resurgence of fascism, frankly Nazism, in Germany, uh, centering around an organization called the AFD, Alternative für Deutschland, which translates to Alternatives for Germany, though how this would be for Germany is debatable. But uh, Germans themselves uh, are really having an allergic reaction to this. Recently, hundreds of thousands of Germans rallied in 100 cities against the plan that the AFD developed to deport people. Germany is having a legitimate difficulty with refugees, but deporting them raises specters of what Nazism really is. And I remember when I was in Germany, this is years ago, there was a very dramatic photo that was shown around the world of a group of nuns 
kneeling and praying in the street and blocking the advance of a police detachment which was coming to deport a Turkish family. So this is an issue of some long-standing. It really cuts to the heart of what kind of nation Germany is going to be, as happening in many nations around the world, including our own. Are they going to be xenophobic uh, or not? At the same time, this Germany is also the scene of farmer protests, which are happening there and have spreading all over the world. And especially, of course, as they always do, tractors descending on Paris. <laughs> now, going east a little bit, uh, just for what a personal item or an item about a person, there's a very wealthy heiress. Her name is Marlena Engelhorn, and she has recently drawn attention to herself by giving away or preparing to give away 90% of her wealth. She said, I'm creating the tax I would want to pay. I like this story because it's one of several examples that I've seen of wealthy people standing up and saying, look, uh, I, I don't need all of this. Uh, let me use some of it for the benefit of the world. It's a very good statement about human nature, and it ties in directly with what Gandhi, carrying this to extreme, would call trusteeship, that you should not regard anything that is legally in your possession as yours but rather as something of which you are the trustee. In other words, your responsibility is to use it for the good of society. And if you can't do that, then get rid of it, <laughs> turn loose of it. So there is, I, I unfortunately want to discuss or at least mention a dangerous development happening here in this country. And I got this from uh, Americans for Peace Now, one of the groups that uh, tracks things like this and provides people with good news. I'm going to mention some more in a minute. But there's a bill before the Senate and the House which would make nonviolent protest a federal crime. It was introduced the end of the last year, and it's called the Safe and Open Streets Act. And this is direct response to, quote, the radical tactics of pro-Palestine protesters who have intentionally blocked roads and highways across the country. Well, I'm not sure uh, where that's going to go or how far it's gone now, but I think it's important to recognize it as a dangerous development to be aware of and see if we can do anything to counteract it. Now, uh, for some good news, though, we finally are getting a little traction on gun control through legislation. Mexico has actually brought seven U.S. gun manufacturers to court in this country, and it's headed for the Supreme Court. It'll be a very unusual case. Does a country have the right to sue the manufacturers of weapons that are killing their people? I mean, if you ask me, which you, no one will, I think uh, certainly they should have such a right. Legislation is one of the ways that we can do something about gun control. Here at Meta, we've also been interested in other ways, raising the human image and so forth, which is subtler, but we think would be equally powerful, if not more so, in the long run. I mean, after all, if you pass legislation 
that somebody doesn't like, it's not the same as persuading them to give up the gun because they have a higher value in view, because they have seen something. But this is by no means an argument against the legislation. It's an absolutely essential first step. Before I go over to some of the resources I want to share with you, I just would like to share a little human interest story. Uh, we have a friend of Meta who is from Hong Kong originally, and 18 years ago, she happened to be walking down a street in Hong Kong and saw some beggars who had a baby, and they were using that baby as a means of getting alms. And she was deeply stricken by the sight, and she went to these people, and through offering money and other forms of persuasion, she took the child. Cassie did. And that was 18 years ago. Cassie tells me that Grace is now 18 and speaks three languages. This is just a vignette of nonviolence, but sometimes it's in those vignettes that you really see what the power of the thing is. So I said I would mention some resources, and it seems like every week there's more websites. I can hardly keep up with them. I mentioned Good Shepherd earlier. There's a very interesting one I just stumbled on called truthforce.works, truthforce.works, and it's Buddhist-oriented. I came across them because recently they did an interview uh, with Reverend Lawson and put that on YouTube. And then there's a magazine called Grist, Grist Magazine, and it has released a new collection of solutionary climate fiction. Solutionary, of course, is an extremely valuable way to operate. Being always stuck in the protest mode is, at the end, extremely weak. You do want to have a constructive program and to offer solutions. I remember years and years ago, there was a very unfortunate thing happening in Canada with, with baby seals who were being taken for their fur. And there was a lot of uh, protesting and outrage, which you can easily imagine, but it was getting nowhere. And finally, one group approached some of these people and said, why are you doing this? Well, because we need money. We don't have any other job. They went out and found jobs for them got them working, and they were very pleased to give up this, you know, really rather horrible and obnoxious work. So if you can find that constructive way of creating change, it's less confrontational, it's less dramatic, it's sometimes less media-worthy, but it's usually more effective. Now, we have a special fondness for a type of activity called, these days, UCP-A, that is Unarmed Civilian Peacekeeping and Accompaniment. And they had a worldwide meeting, 61 organizations representing 24 countries in Geneva who called themselves the Community of Practice. I like that organizational idea that here are people doing the same thing sharing resources, sharing tips, you know, strengths and weaknesses. This is what works, this is what doesn't. But they don't have to become a centralized organization. They're a network, and so the community of practice 
is a very, very useful organizational form for an awfully useful type of organization. Now, one of these groups, and the one we like to talk about the most, I guess, is called Nonviolent Peace Force. They have offices in Geneva and uh, Minnesota and around the world. And they are offering a, a trip to the Philippines where they say you will witness firsthand the powerful work of safety and peace of the NP Philippines team. How they work in partnership with the local community, the key decision makers, and various parties to a peace process that has been going on for some time now in the region of Mindanao. Of course, they say you know, we'll also enjoy the Philippines scenery, hospitality, and food. Uh, and this is going to be a nine-day trip, which will begin uh, in Manila on the 18th of April and end on the 26th. If you're interested, get a hold of Nonviolent Peace Force and try to contact Ana Zaros. If you ha are or know of some youth who are interested in working for peace, uh, Pache Bene, P uh, the Franciscan organization, has once again this year funded a series of Changemaker Youth Grants. A person will get $1,000 for innovative projects that address community violence. But you have to apply soon. And the last thing I want to mention is that in Waging Nonviolence, which is you know, a very good source for all kinds of nonviolent news, but mostly for labor struggles, but not always, they had a very good article called The MST at 40. Now, the MST, if you don't recognize that acronym, you know, we in the peace movement have got to have ours just like the Army does. MST stands for the Movimento de Trabajadores Sem Tierra. I hope I have not butchered the Portuguese, but it's the Movement of Landless Workers, and we are actually at Meta going to have a report on that group by uh, Sofia Pichotti coming up soon. This month is the 40th anniversary of the MST, which is the largest social movement in the Americas. It began as a group of displaced farmers and has evolved over decades into a mass movement with as many as 2 million members and a presence in 24 of the 26 states of Brazil. Today, at their 40th, the movement is the largest producer of organic food in Brazil, the largest producer of organic rice in all of Latin America, and this is all in a country which is one of the most unequal nations in the world. But they have made incredible progress during these 40 years, and these are achievements that can inspire efforts uh, to reduce rural inequality uh, here and anywhere. I mentioned earlier the farmer protests going on in Europe. So I like to put the MST alongside Mondragon, which we had a report on some programs back. They are two of several fairly large-scale, I'm going to use the word utopian developments. They aim at uh, thoroughgoing change. This is not just a labor struggle. MST has formed communities 
They have their own school. They do their own legal work. What they do is there's a, there are huge tracts of land in Brazil, so you really couldn't replicate this everywhere, but there are huge tracts of land in Brazil, an old system that we call from the Roman days latifundia, where one person or one family owns an enormous amount of land and then lets it just lie fallow. So they uh, illegally, although I'll get back to that in a, se in a second, illegally they get into the property, they get actually into the property and farm it and live there and start their communities. And needless to say, these are communities of a very progressive nature, uh, just as we were seeing uh, earlier. Uh, and so, as I say, uh, our very own Sofia Pichotti is going to be presenting us a report on the MST soon, so I won't say more about it here. But I just wanted to shout out to them at their 40th anniversary. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. Uh, remember that in a world filled with noise, nonviolence remains a quiet, persistent force for change. That's almost a quote from Gandhi. Each act of compassion, every step towards understanding, contributes to a more peaceful world. So until next time, keep the flame of nonviolence burning in your hearts. This is Michael Nagler for the Nonviolence Report, signing off for you now. Until next time.